Corporate Thought, the podcast where we talk about everything from food to family to music to the life of entrepreneurship and anything and everything else that makes life worth living. Welcome to the show. Hi, this is Mark Marling. Welcome to Corporate Thought. On today's program, my guest is Mario Pereca, chef, podcaster, entrepreneur, and media mogul. Mario takes the time to tell us his origin story and some of the obstacles he encountered along the way. He also regales us with lots of stories of his past, including learning of a product I had never heard of before, Kraft Spaghetti. I hope you really enjoy my conversation with Mario. Hey, Mario, good to uh, have you with me today. Mark, thank you so much for having me. This is great. I loved having you on my podcast. I love the conversations we have, and I'm super honored to be here. Oh, I'm I'm excited. To, you know, we've had enough conversations that I, I feel like you're like a you know going to going to be one of my brothers soon. And I'm just happy to have you uh, have you in my life and uh, have be able to have kind of the the ongoing conversations that we've started to have. The feeling is more than mutual. I can guarantee you that. That's cool. So you're sitting over there in, in Pittsburgh and I'm here in, in Virginia. And again, uh, you know, going back to having to record things uh, and not be able to, uh, to sit together, but, but you're a foodie like me. And um, I know you, you're actually, I don't know, do you think being your chef? So as a chef, does that make you, do you get the, 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 be able to say, Hey, well, you might be a foodie Mark, but I'm a chef and a foodie. Like, is there, is there, is there a hierarchy? I, no, I don't think so. I think people, they, they think that all the time. Like when we go out to eat with someone, they'll be like, oh, I'll bet you're super hard to impress. And it's like, food is food. I mean, we all, you don't need a degree to like food, right? We all create our own special preferences, our own versions of comfort food based on what, we're, what we grow up on. So, I mean, if we throw down in the kitchen, there might be some differences just because I have some training and it doesn't mean that mine's going to be better than yours because maybe you know your mother's special recipe for mashed potatoes and they're like the best. You can't, it's really hard to top that. But so I, I don't think that it makes, you know, there's a hierarchy per se. I just think that I have a little bit more than the average person. I have a little bit more food indexing from like, a taste and execution standpoint. I have more references to fall back on when it comes to food, but that doesn't mean that I'll like something more or it has to be a certain way or anything like that. I think good food is good food. And anytime you have good food and good people together, there's just something that that food does to kind of bridge the gap and bring people closer. It facilitates more connection. I really believe that. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And there's a reason why when you have a dinner party, every, I'm going to hazard a guess that everybody congregates in the kitchen, yep. right? It's just what happens. Yep. And happens. Um, so, well, I want to hear your whole, I want to hear your story. I know, you know, you run a podcast um, six days a week, which is, um, seems daunting to me. I'm, I'm highly impressed by that, but I kind of want to go back a little bit because, you know, you know, you're a chef, you're a podcaster, but there's got to be, you know, I, I always like un unpacking the origin story. So to you will take us back to how you to where you started. Like, you know, I don't know, did you come up right out of like high school and say, I'm going to be a chef? Like, give us give us the give us the rundown. Yeah. How much time you got? No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. But it, I really think it goes all the way back to when I was a kid, when I was, you know, I'm talking like two, three years old. I mean, I have very vivid memories from a very young age. I don't know how, but I just happened to have them. And one of the things that I remember as a kid is I was, and I, I like to go back to when before, specifically before we were even with clients before we were seven years old, because I think that's before the filters are put on, so to okay. speak. I mean, they develop up to that point, but the things you did before you were seven are the things that just come naturally. That's just who you are. You don't judge, you don't feel judged, you show up, then you learn those other things as you get older. So when I was a kid, I always had a thing for performing. So I would watch, there were three specific movies and I would watch these movies over and over and over again and memorize them. And then my father was a chiropractor. And so he had, the, our, we had a home office, meaning we lived in our home and then there was a hallway. And when you went down the hallway and opened the door, you were in his practice. And so they would put a baby gate up 
to separate the two so that I couldn't get into the office during working hours. But me being as resourceful as I am, I would gather props, I would get things, and I would climb over this gate, get down onto the other side, and then go into the waiting room and perform for his patients. And I still, to this day, 30 years later, will go to his office when I'm in the area, and patients will say, oh, I remember when you performed for us in the waiting room. So I always had that element to me of performance, being in front of people. I never had a thing for stage fright. I was never afraid to be in front of people. So I think there's a little bit of performance in there somewhere that, you know, that, that kind of was just innate. Um, so then fast forward, I remember uh, as a kid also, my dad was, like I said, as a chiropractor, would travel a lot for work. He'd go to seminars for continuing ed, and he got a, a board-eligible neurology, so he was traveling a lot. And I would go with him a lot of the times, and my mother, but some, a lot of the times they would go and I would stay with my grandparents, with my dad's parents. And my grandfather came here from Italy when he was 17. And he started five businesses. So he was an entrepreneur, super successful, owned and operated five businesses. But the year I was born just so happened to be the same year he retired. And so when he retired, he took up cooking as a hobby. And so he watched his mother in Italy, learned how to cook there. And then that was what he did. He cooked every day. So when I would stay with him, we would do two things. He had a full-scale workshop in his basement. So we would do woodworking in the day, which was a lot of fun and very creative. Then in the evening, we would cook together. And this was right around the same time, coincidentally, as Food Network started. And when Food Network started, I'm just going to go out. I might, I might make some people angry by saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So Food Network, if you're listening, I love you. I give you a lot of props for uh, my career path, but I just want to tell you, the programming back then was much better than the programming is now. Emerald Live, Malto Mario, Boy Meets Grill with Bobby Flay. Those were shows where chefs would actually like Julia Child-esque, right? They would stand and cook and people would watch and you would actually learn how professional chefs cook certain things. And it was so much fun. I loved it. I would watch for hours. I would watch Emerald because he practically owned the Food Network in those days. So it would be Emerald Live after Emerald Live. There'd be like eight episodes in a row and I'd watch all of them. And then I'd cook with my grandfather. And so that's when I decided I want to be a chef. So going into the cooking space, I did it right out of high school. When I was 18, as soon as I graduated, I started a three-year apprenticeship at the number one city club in America. I'd go to school, to college one day a week from like every Monday from like 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'd be in class. And then Tuesday through Saturday, I would be working full time. And it was a great experience. But I think that my background as a performer and that from being a kid and the food network ask type thing, I still have a passion for food, still love it, but I don't think being in a restaurant as a chef is what my calling specifically was. Gotcha. I would get back in the space again. Don't get me wrong, but I would like to do it as an investor with a little bit of say on how the menu is and you know, who's in, who's in place and things like that. But I wouldn't want to do, I would want to do it with money. That's play money that like, if this works great, everyone wins. If it just breaks even, great. At least I have this thing. So oh, that's kind of awesome. what, that's where I'd want to be. That's why I'm not in that space right now today because I don't have the play money to do that yet um, at, that, at, at that level that I would want to do that at. But um, that's how I could see myself getting back into the space. Cool. Well, let's, 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 let's pause on the, on the origin story for a minute so we can go back because you, you talk, I, I, I listen, I take notes and I go back and I say, okay, now let's go through these things. So first of all, because you raised it, what are the three specific movies? <laughs> There's still some of my favorites to this day, but number one, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, great movie. Number two, The Wizard of Oz. Okay. And number three was Dumbo. But I like Dumbo, Dumbo from the perspective of I love the ringmaster. There's ah. something about the dude with the top hat that controlled everything that fascinated me. I'm going to have to go back to that one because that one I've seen, but it's not, it's not one that instantly comes to mind where the other two are, are, you know, near and dear. And when we talk about Willy Wonka, we're talking about the original, right? Gene Wilder. Yes. Uh, Okay. Even good. I saw the new one. I never care to see it again. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure we're on the (laughs) same page there. Right. You can't replace Gene Wilder. I mean, Oh gosh, he's awesome. He was perfect for that role. That role was done to perfection. And I mean, I can't think like when I go back in my own life, now there was another role model I had back in that day that I did do performances from as well, but it was a TV show and that was Mr. Rogers neighborhood. So 
when I look at, and he's a Pittsburgh guy too, but when I look at Mr. Rogers and Willy Wonka, and as I reverse engineer my life, I can see a lot of that influence play out. Ah, okay. Which is super interesting, by the way. Yeah, no, well, look, I think that, that those early childhood uh, memories, like you pointed out, like before you were seven, even, like how they, how they impact your life and how they keep sort of showing back up. So um, you also, you, you described your grandfather as an entrepreneur. And I was curious um, if you, if you can recall, did you always, is that what you thought of? Or did you just think he had, he had a lot of jobs? No, that's what I thought of. I knew he was an entrepreneur. My father, the same way, though he's a chiropractor, he has his own practice. And he also has other businesses that he has uh, ownership in. And so I grew up in that environment. So even when I went to be a chef, I always did it with the intention to have my own restaurant. If you would ask me 10 years ago or 12 years ago where I'd be today, I would probably say opening my fourth or fifth restaurant, building my restaurant empire. So I never went into it with the intention just to be an executive chef at a property. I went into it to have my own thing. I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that it came from, you know, just it's in my blood growing up around it and the third generation entrepreneur. It's just, and it also gave me a lot of confidence and encouragement when I decided I'm going to do my own thing now. I didn't get, you know, my parents, my family, I was super blessed that they're super supportive, even in the lean years, because that's the path that they went. So it wasn't like, you know, it's always a crapshoot. Don't get me wrong. I mean, but it's when entrepreneurs take risk, they're calculated risks. They're not risks that could go either way because then they could lose everything. So whenever you take a risk to the outside perspective, it always looks like, oh, I wonder what they were thinking or why would they ever do that? But when you do it as an entrepreneur, when you're in the game, it's very calculated. Yes, it could always go the other way, but chances are really good that when you make that decision, it's gonna you're prepared for what comes of it. I think that's that's very very true. Um, you know, growing up, my parents were both entrepreneurs, but I it wasn't it wasn't the terminology of the time, right? So you know, I'm three years old and my sister is 18 months old, and my father quits his job and starts his own company. And, you know, he had only emigrated to the U.S. like a, not even a decade before. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, like, growing up, I thought that was my dad's job. I didn't job and entrepreneur were, you know, they didn't, didn't blend. It took until I was an adult for me to go, you know, holy shit. Like, you know, I, that was that was ballsy. And then he dies and I'm 11 and my sister's nine. And my mom goes and takes over his company rather than going getting it and, and just getting a job. She literally goes and takes over his company. Same thing. Like, you know, I'm thinking when I had an 11 year old and a nine year old, you know, was I, you know, that it's, it, they're ballsy moves. And, but they, they are calculated. I've asked my mother about why did she do that? She said, I knew that if I was going to provide for my family long-term that I had a better chance to have a good life doing this than going and getting a job. Uh, and so, and not that it's not a job, you know what I mean? By going and being an employee of someone else. How about that? Right. Yeah. So. I, I could never see my dad being an employee because I never did see him as one. I mean, ever since I was born the year, uh, the year that he graduated chiropractic school. And then we came back in. So I was born in Davenport, Iowa. And then we came back to the Pittsburgh area and he worked as an associate doctor with some other doctors before buying and starting his practice. But He's, he was always, he's, he was always been, and it wasn't maybe, maybe it wasn't the word entrepreneur back in those days, but I saw him as a business owner. He owned his own business. And that was what I associated with that. Sure. No, I think that, that, that's really cool. And I was thinking about, and then the third thing that came into mind, and and I don't mean to jump all over, but it's like, these are the things as you're talking, I'm listening and I'm hearing like, Oh, what about that too? Cause we could just go off on all sorts of tangents and, and rabbit holes. But I was thinking about uh, those early days of uh, of Food Network, and you're absolutely right. They were all cooking shows. When you you mentioned um, uh, Bobby Flay, and I wonder if you knew. Do you remember the show he had with Jack McDavid called Chillin' and Grillin'? I don't remember that one. That Ooh, must be before. You gotta go find that one. He, yeah, he had a show with Jack McDavid of Jack's Firehouse in Philadelphia, and it was a grilling show, and it was the two of them together, and. Uh, you know, Bobby Flay went on to uh, fame and fortune, and I'm not 
knocking uh, Jack McDavid at all, but I don't think he became as, as a household of a name, let's put it that way, as uh, yeah. as, as Bobby Flay did. As so. someone in the space, yeah. Bobby Flay, I know, the other guy. I've never, this is the first time hearing I'd have to go look him up. There you go. But it makes me think, what it made me think of, and you know, we have about a decade between us of age difference, but early days of MTV mm-hmm. versus where MTV went. Like the early days when they actually showed music videos, that was when, like, there's plenty of people my age who go, that's when MTV was really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I don't remember watching MTV in those days, but I remember my cousins, my older cousins watching it. And I would be around them and seeing them watch. So I remember what it was. Um, and yeah, and it's the same thing. It's very true. Anytime you turn on the Food Network today, it's either uh, it's some kind of competition, cooking competition show or some kind of destination show where someone just goes and tries different foods in different places. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. I just really miss that old school format, like the Julia Child-esque format. I love that. That was like fun. I remember coming home from school because my house, we didn't get the Food Network when I was a kid, but my grandparents did. So that's why I'd watch it there. But when I would come home from school, I remember every day I'd come home from school, I'd grab something from the fridge and I'd sit in front of the TV and on PBS, they used to have a show and it, one would play after the other. It would start with Great Chefs of America and then it would go into Great Chefs of the World. And they would go into the restaurants of these chefs on off hours and they would make their signature dish in their kitchen. And these people weren't dynamic personalities and the Great Chefs of the World, they didn't even speak English. They had a translator translating them. But it was fascinating to watch these people make this food in these restaurants. And so I'd be glued to the TV for an hour right after school watching that. And then I would do my homework. But uh, So I'm going to suggest to you that just like the fact that music videos have moved to YouTube, which is, seems to be where you can go and, you know, artists are still releasing new music videos. I have noticed that maybe it's because of COVID that, you know, production of big shows is off. So you have a bunch of chefs who are at home and they're literally setting up a video camera, right? I know I saw Alton Brown was doing it inside his closed studio and there's other people doing this and they're basically, um, oh, the, the uh, what is her name who wrote, um, I make the name of the title wrong, what was it? Heat, acid, fat, mm. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 My show know. notes will have it all correct. Anyway, she had, she did something with lasagna recently, but they're basically making easy videos without all the big production and they're posting them on YouTube. So I wonder if YouTube will be the home of that type of show that you miss. Maybe. I'm seeing a lot on Instagram, too. I mean, Jose Andreas has been doing Instagram shows. like, And his are I like his because not only is he cooking something there, but he's got his family involved. And they put on music and they sing and they, they're just having fun. Not that everyone has to sing or anything like that, but it's his personality. And they're having fun and he's not like super... T- technical with technique and all of those things but it's really good food that anyone can make and it's using the food as the conduit and that's what i like that's no what I, I think that's really and, I, and he's an impressive guy to begin with i mean if you're talking about a, if, i would suggest that maybe to a chef as a role model he's he's a he's what i refer to as a bit of a 21st century leader yeah um, i agree yeah but he is a he is absolutely fascinating and I don't think he's the kind of guy, I'm hoping that he's not the person who will let fame uh, go to his head and he winds up doing, and I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say I have no filter about things. And I have always been very impressed by Jacques Torres, the chocolatier. Mm-hmm. And then I watched, he did a television show that is so bad and so stupid. And I'm like, what in the world were you thinking, man? You are, you are top of your game in your area. Don't go do that. Stay away from that, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. it, it's not. He, it's not he is when it comes to chocolate. He's one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I've seen his show. Yeah. The one, the one where people are like making really bad cakes, and he's reviewing them. Yeah, that's not oh, good. Yeah, it's not. It's just not. I just I don't say it quite. I have. But if you <laughs> see him work with chocolate, it's mesmerizing. Hands down. I mean, the man is, is extremely talented. So I'm like, don't go, don't go, don't go messing in places. Although I have no problem with you experimenting and trying things out. Once you know it's not working for you, move on and try something else out. So innovation, okay. right? Innovation. All right. So here you are. You're a chef. You go and you've done and you've you've done your studies and you've been apprenticing. And at some point in time, you decide, like you said, that while you could see yourself back in the restaurant business, maybe on the ownership side some itch wasn't being scratched as being a chef. It was not, 
it it was not it's not it wasn't hitting you on all the on, on all the all the senses it wasn't allowing me to express myself and to give back make an impact the way i desired to do at my full potential i would say so i was in the business and i was doing really well like i worked my way up i was at the number one city club in america as i said uh, my whole goal once I got there was to become a sous chef because I knew that if I could become a sous chef at that property, then I had pretty much carte blanche to go where I wanted to after that because it was a very coveted position. It was something where, you know, our executive chef, who is one of my role models to this day, his name's Keith Kogenauer, he was uh, on the Culinary Olympic team in the 90s because he competed in Germany in the Culinary Olympics. And he was actually became captain of the culinary Olympic team. So he was a very big name in the field. And he, he, I believe he has won more medals than any other chef in the U S and cooking competitions. So, I mean, he's, he's right up there. He's either tied with or has more. So he by far is the best chef that I've ever worked with. I mean, just seeing the way that he approaches business and the wood, the way that he executes in the kitchen and putting flavors together, dishes together, managing people. He is like the, the, the top of the heap. Um, so I got to work with him and my whole goal was to become a sous chef. So he also, because I came from the same culinary school that he did. And so, you know, he and I always had a very special relationship and he was a little bit harder on me in some instances than other people because he wanted to see me succeed, which I appreciate today. Back then it wasn't so much fun, but today I appreciate that. And so I worked my way up through some and had some some learned some hard lessons did what i had to do it was very intense and i worked my way up and finally achieved that and not many people did because there's only three sous chefs at any given time and once you got that position you pretty much didn't leave unless a real opportunity came along worth leaving for so i worked my way up i achieved that goal and from that perspective i did that for about two years um about a year and a half actually but going into the second year of that is when i realized you know, this is what I, I got that close look of his life and not that his life wasn't good. It just wasn't aligned with what I wanted to do. He is great at what he did. He still is. He's still doing it as one of the best in the world, but there was still something more that I wanted to do in a different direction. So I, I talked to him about it and he pushed me to, to go and explore and to do other things. So, I mean, we sat down and had a long conversation and what would actually happened was as a chef, I, I call it the perfect storm that hit me, meaning I was working long hours. I was, you know, I was very stressed. I wasn't sleeping well. I was, you know, it was a very competitive environment. And so all of those things kind of hit me and I was an athlete uh, all the way up until that point. And something with those hours and with all of those things, I wasn't going to the gym anymore. I wasn't taking care of myself. And I ended up gaining a lot of weight because I had all this great food around me that I could eat whenever I wanted to, which was fun, but it didn't turn out real well. And so I was in a position where I noticed not only physically was I feeling it, but emotionally it started to show up. I started to have be very short tempered with people. I was not happy a lot of the time. I felt like I was living in a fog and I almost felt like borderline depressed. And that's not who I am by any stretch. So I realized this. And so I, what I did was I said, I have to do something about this. And I think the thing I have the most control over is my body. So I called my dad and I said, he's a chiropractor. And I said, dad, look, I need to lose some weight. I, what do I do? I said, I don't have time for gimmicks or all these other things that are out there. I don't want to be testing things. I just want to do what works. I'm very focused on what I'm doing and I just don't have a lot of time. What can I do? And he said, I'll help you, but you have to be 110% committed. So I said, I'm in, let's do this. So I did everything he said, and in about six months, I lost 70 pounds, felt better than I ever felt, was going back to the gym, my energy went up, I was showing up differently. And so because I had such a radical transformation visually, people started asking me what I was doing. And so I started coaching them the way he coached me. And I didn't think anything of it. They were telling their friends to call me, and I was working with them and whatever, and is this more is this more like the workout part or the or or the nutrition part or a combination both, both. combination okay. yeah so i was kind of like co weight loss coaching people right yep. so we were talking about their diet we would talk about you know, like cuz i used intermittent fasting so we would talk about how to implement that talk about working out all of those different things and it was basically just from my experience and what i learned if i ever something came up that i didn't understand i'd go ask my dad and he'd tell me and then we would yeah, i would connect him with them or we would we get it fit worked out and so I did this for a while. And what I noticed was at the end of that year, I was doing my taxes and I realized I made more money coaching than I did cooking. And that's when I said, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I got intentional about this. 
I wonder what happened if I actually tried to build a business as opposed to just letting whatever happens happen. So that's when I took a good, hard, long look, had some hard conversations and decided I'm going to, you know, leave the cooking world professionally and go pursue my own business and doing this. And that's what made me pivot. So I always tell people, I didn't wake up one morning and decide, hey, I think I want to go be a coach or I want to be a consultant. It chose me. And so it just kind of happened organically. So I started doing weight loss coaching full time. And, you know, what I noticed was when I would work with clients, I would, I would get the questions <laughs> over and over because people knew I used to be a chef. So the number one question I would always get is what can I eat? Because people think when they make a lifestyle shift for whatever reason, all they can eat the rest of their life is grilled chicken and broccoli, but nothing's <laughs> further from the truth, right? There's so many different foods out there to experiment with, to try, to try different cooking techniques. I mean, it's, there's so much variety. And so because I kept getting this question over and over again, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a book and that way it'll create a little stream of revenue and it'll negate that question that I keep asking. So I started writing a book and a large supplement company found out that I was writing a book and what the scope of it was. And so they commissioned me to write one specifically for them. So I ended up writing two books when I only really wanted to write one. So I wrote two books. And then when the books came out, another like come to Jesus moment I had was, you know, when, when those books, when, when that happened, it wasn't like today, like today, anyone can go to like Amazon and write a book and do it fairly cost effectively and have print on demand and all of those things and self publish. Well, back then, this was like before all of this started to materialize. So I had to do kind of a hybrid model of publishing. And it was very expensive. So I spent pretty much my whole life savings on getting this book to market. So I was sitting in my office one day. And for a minute, I had this feeling of overwhelming joy because I was holding my book in my hand for the first time. And it was like, I've been working on this for like a year and a half. It's finally here. I'm holding it. This is, this is like a moment in my life. Then I put the book down on my desk and I looked around the office and I had all these boxes stacked up of books sitting around me. And I went, how the hell am I going to sell these? And that's when reality started to set in. So that's when I thought, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? So obviously the clients I was working with would, you know, I started there, but then I had to, you know, make my money back somehow. So I start, nothing will light a fire under you better than necessity. So I started, what I did was I bought uh, electrical cooking equipment. So I got like a little convection oven, a little burner, um, you know, the blender, like all of those things. And then I started booking uh, event rooms at hotels and I would take this equipment and I would go, I would sell tickets and then people would come and I would cook recipes from the book, let people try them and then they'd buy a book. And so I would do these events. So I would make a little bit of money on the event, but then I would sell books at the event. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the hook was that they were coming because you were teaching healthy cooking or yeah, weight loss slash cooking? Well, here's where, that, here's where this comes into play where it gets interesting. Uh, my cookbook was actually a combination. So the, the title of the book was The Good, The Bad, The Cookbook. So the first 90% of the book were all the good, meaning tasty foods broken down into categories between four and 600 calories. So, you know, we had all the nutritional analysis, all the breakdown there. The last 10% of the book is what we called the bad. And the bad was like, if you're going to a Super Bowl party, you're going to a birthday and you just want really good food or you're on a cheat day. There were things in there like bacon, mushroom, cheeseburger, casserole, um, you know, like different uh, five cheese dip with hot sausage, things like that. That's like, really good, no nutritional analysis because you don't want to know what it is. So that was that part of the book. So it was all, it was about balance, but it was about that 90, 10 balance. Right. So when people would come, it was about sustainable, delicious, healthy recipes, but you know, it was an experience. It was a cooking demonstration. So you could learn how to cook them. You get to taste the food, get to ask questions, and then you can buy a book before you leave. And so that's kind of how we had it set up. And so the first one went pretty well. I had about 10 people show up, which was good for the first run. The second one, though, was interesting. The second one, I had about 15 people there. So I was happy that we got more people there. Um, But what happened was, so logistically, I thought I had everything covered. But I'll tell this story really quickly. I'm there cooking. And the first thing that happened is I'm in the middle of cooking my first dish and the breakers go. So now I'm trying to cook with no electricity. By the time the hotel figured out where the breakers were, this was about 45 minutes later. So I'm trying to do everything I can waiting for my equipment to actually work. Then they get the breakers back on, the equipment's working. And I'm like, okay, now I need to hurry up 
because I need to, you know, get this food done in a certain time so people can try it. So I'm trying to cook fast. Well, when you cook fast, you're using higher heat. Sometimes there's smoke created. So the fire alarm goes off. The hotel needs, everyone gets evacuated. The fire company shows up. So it was a big thing. We get everyone back in. I'm, you know, try, I'm apologizing. So the one thing that happened that I want to take note of is my chef training kicked in. There's a term in the industry, in the cooking industry called being in the weeds. I'm sure you've heard it before. Sure. When everything hits the fan and you just keep your head down, you stay focused and you just keep working, you shut everything else off and you just keep going. Well, that's what I had to do there. My training kicked in and I just did it instinctively. Well, everyone came back in. I'm apologizing, giving away free books, trying to make people, because they paid to be there. And I felt really bad. And most people, they felt bad too. But so everyone was leaving and I was up there just feeling terrible. Like this was just a big, biggest disaster that could have happened. And at the end of that, some lady comes up to me that I didn't meet up until that time. And she says, you had a pretty rough day today, huh? And I said, yeah, a little bit. I'm sorry. You know, I tried to keep it together or whatever. I hope you had a good time. And she said, well, I'm from the local uh, CBS affiliate. And if you could do this well without working equipment, I'd love to see what you could do with working equipment. Here's my card. Call me. So I followed up and that's how I landed my first TV gig. It was just, uh-huh. it was, it, it came from like, it was a test, right? It was like the worst thing that could have potentially happened. And I could have packed it up and been like, hey, I'll just give you your money back. Sorry, you know, whatever. But I powered through, my training kicked in. I tried to make the best of it. And then that opportunity showed up. So then I show up and do this TV gig and that's where I fell in love with media. That's when I was like, I got in front of like a thousand times more people here than I do at my, at my events that I do. And this was a lot of fun. So I started calling every TV producer I could find. And I ended up booking out my calendar to where I did over 70 different TV shows up and down the East coast throughout this time period. This was about like a two year stretch. So every month I was traveling, I was going somewhere else doing another show. And what I would do when I would go to these shows is instead of going into the green room and hanging, so what most people do is they go set up, then they go sit in the green room and have like, they usually have like a cheese platter, fruit platter, and some waters and drinks. They hang out and have a good time. Then they go out and do their segment and then they leave. Well, I was like, what am I going to do back there? So I would set up and then I'd go watch the producers in the production room because I wanted to keep, you know, my set as well as as good as possible. I wanted to know how they were operating so I could do, you know, match them and it could make a better product. So the producers, they sit in front of this big panel of TVs and they're switching back and forth on camera angles and working the switchboard. So I always go in and watch them. And if I could, I would ask questions. Sometimes they wouldn't let me in and I'd have to just stand outside and watch. But Sometimes I could get in there and actually talk to the head executive producer while they were doing that. So I would learn. Well, there's one day that I had booked that, and this is what led to podcasting. That's why I'm telling you this. Yeah. One day I had booked, it was, um, it was a two-day thing. I had a friend call me and go, I need a favor. I'm starting up a local TV show and I need to draw there. People are drawn to music and food. And I know that you've been doing to the TV circuit and you have experience. Can you come do a cooking demo for me? We're going to have a live studio audience and we're going to you know, have it live on TV. I was like, yeah, that's fine. So it was a smaller production, but yeah, I'm going to help you out. That's cool. So I I knew that morning I had a show in Cleveland. So I was in Cleveland and I had to drive back to Pittsburgh. So I went the night before and actually stayed in Cleveland, got up because I had to be in the studio at 5 a.m. because they had a thing there where they started at 6 a.m. during the news and they gave you four segments up until 9 a.m. So it was like a whole morning affair. So I went in there and did my thing in Cleveland, packed up, drove back to Pittsburgh to set up again and do the show here. And as I was setting up, it was a very small production. I was like, I'm so tired. This is like, why am I here? I just did like three other spots this week. These are the thoughts that were going through my head. And I was just not in a, like, I was just, you know, you have, you, we have those moments where we feel overwhelmed or whatever. Sure. So <laughs> I'm there doing that. I set up and I go sit in the production room. This was such a small production. The production room consisted of one person with one computer. So I sat down next to him and I'm watching him do his thing. And I'm talking to him. Come to find out this gentleman had been in, he was, he was a teacher. He taught media at the local high school. And this was something he was doing to get his students involved with the TV station. But he was in radio for 20 years before that. And radio always fascinated me, but I didn't know how to break into it. So I asked him, I said, you've been in radio. How do I, you know, what's, how do I get in there? So he gave me some phone numbers. So I followed up with some people, ended up landing a radio gig. So I had this radio show on local radio and 
that's where I flipped it because I realized that this radio show could only be heard locally. So how can I get it out to more people? And that's where I discovered podcasting back in 2011. And so we would take the radio show, we would do an after hour show as a podcast, and then we would flip the radio show into a podcast as well. And we also syndicated the radio show. So it was on like five different stations at the time. And then the local TV station that we were just at found out about our show is put cameras in the radio station so that they would then broadcast our radio show on TV. And then the newspaper, I started writing three weekly columns for them and creating digital content for them. So I had TV, radio, and newspaper. And the, the funny thing is, these three entities in this town never wanted to work together. But I came in and made, they were all working together at one time. And it was just because I was able to facilitate the the relationship. And it was a good thing, but that's where I discovered, you know, over that three-year period, I got, I had, I created a lot of awareness, right? I was in front of, and I did the math, I was in front of in excess of 50 million people in that time period. But what I also noticed was I didn't have a tangible offer to capitalize on that awareness aside from my cookbook. So you you don't make a lot of money selling books. I I did make my money back from my initial investment. So I'm, I'm proud of that. But as far as actually making a living, I was making a living, but it was just practically just making ends meet. So at that point, I had to look at it and go, okay, what are my tools in my toolbox now? What do I have and how can I build a business from this that can actually allow me to experience life the way I would experience it while impacting people at a deep level? And that's kind of what I constructed into my company today. Well, that's, I was going to ask you, use the word intentional. That when you realized and you uh, you were still well, this was like the um, the side hustle, and you realized that you had made more money coaching, and I guess and you and at that point in your story, you, you used the word intentional. And I was going to ask you to define it for for me, except you then went on, and if some if anyone can't can't grasp intentionality out of the story that you just unpacked for us, um, then they got to clear their ears out because. That's, I think, the the best way to describe what you have just, you know, uh, told me, including the hustle. And there was so many examples of the hustle there because you didn't let it get you down, it sounds like. You didn't let that second experience and the disaster with the 15 people. Um, obviously, you could have, like you said, packed up and gone home. And unfortunately, a lot of people do. Um, I think at the first sign of of catastrophe, uh, they say, well, I, you know, I, I, I can't get over this. So, um, yours is a, is, is compelling, I think, because it shows that you didn't, you know, you didn't give up and you actually, you had some really nice rewards that kept that because you kept at it. It seems like you just, they just kept uh, opening themselves up to you. If that's, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and I've said this before on my podcast many times, and I think that my reason for one of the reasons why I was able to find success is because I had the ability and I reverse engineered it to figure this out, but I just, I had this innately and this is the best way to articulate it. I had the ability to be equally completely focused on the outcome I want to achieve, but at the same time be completely open to the possibilities. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's not because that pulling at both ends keeps me centered. It's like, I, this is what I think I want. This is what I think the outcome is that I want to achieve. So now I'm going to take massive action towards that. But in the midst of that action, if God gives me feedback or a, a nudge somewhere else or an opportunity open somewhere else, I'm going to go explore that independent of the outcome that I want. Because I don't always believe the outcome I want is the right outcome for me. That can change. The outcome's fluid. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I wanted to be a chef and have my own restaurant. Now I'm sitting here talking to you doing podcasts like this, and I'm infinitely more satisfied and fulfilled doing this. But if I would have just said, you know, I'm a sh- and believe me, my parents were very supportive through this whole journey, but other people weren't. I mean, when I left that job of being of a chef, like I heard it from a few different angles about how crazy I was and, you know, I had it made and I worked so hard to work my way up and I just threw it all away. You know, you hear all these stories from people. But I really felt pushed, not pushed, but pulled in a direction. Because I really believe if you push, anything you push, pushes back. But if you allow yourself to be pulled, then you can kind of look around and see what's, what's available. And so I always, I always went with my intuition, but I did it from the perspective of 
this is the outcome I think I want right now. But God, if you have a better plan, I'm more open to that than my own ideas. And I think that's why I ended up where I am. Do you write these ideas or visions down? Sometimes. Yeah. I don't have like a, a system where I do that, but um, I have written them down. I've had journals before where I've written down, here's what my life looks like in vivid detail. But you know, I don't ever want to be so tied to it that like I will it to happen because I don't think it's up to me. I think it's up to me to act and to make decisions in the moment, but whatever happens, whatever that outcome is, I don't think that's up to me. And it sounds right. weird, but it's that that's the way I look at it. So I, I, I want to be attached enough to the outcome that it drives me into action and compels me to, to work for it. But I don't want to be so attached to it that I bang my head off the wall and get frustrated because I'm not creating that specific thing. Because who am I to decide what the best thing for me is? That's up to God. And like, I'm a man of faith, so I'll say that. But call it the universe, call it whatever you want. But I really believe that my life is, you know, is, is orchestrated by a higher power, but that higher power gave me one of the greatest gifts we can have, which is called free will. So it's ultimately up to me to decide what action I do when I do it. But then based on that, I'll get feedback. And based on that feedback, I can make another decision. And that ultimately is what leads me to where I'm supposed to be. Right. And, and, and that was a little bit why I was asking that question, because I think some people I've heard people say, well, I don't want to write it down because then it doesn't allow me to, to respond to other environments. But I think your way of looking at it is, 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 is better and maybe more correct. It's okay to write it down, but understand that just because you put it on paper doesn't mean you can't tear that piece of paper up. Doesn't mean that you are, that you are forever wed to that specific vision. And, and it may be just, a broad stroke too. Mm -hmm. So writing, can... where writing becomes very powerful for me personally is when I'm brainstorming. If I feel stuck or I think I need, or if I'm trying to come up with an idea, I have like a giant whiteboard and I like to write it out. Now you can do it on paper too. It doesn't have to be a whiteboard, but I like to write it out and step back and look at it because all your thoughts in your head can become jumbled. But if you can get them out to where you can visually see them and then arrange them, you get a whole new perspective. So that's where I think writing is very valuable for me is in the ideation process when I have all these thoughts and all these ideas and I get to write them out and organize them and look at them instead of just thinking of them internally, then it gives me a new perspective to, to kind of come up with new thoughts and figure things out. Gotcha. So are you a, a whiteboard, but I was going to say is, are you, um, are you techie when it comes to this stuff or, or are you old fashioned? Like are you pen and paper and whiteboard or are you, you know, embedded in some program that, you know, stays with you? Well, both. I mean, I, if I'm in the moment and I need to come up with something or I feel stuck, I like to be pen and paper old fashioned just because I can make it happen faster that way. Um, if, you know, when I have the idea and I'm trying to just arrange things and organize them, then I go to my, to my computer. There's a program I like to use where I can bullet point things and then drag and drop them into different orders so that I can look at them in different ways. But that typically doesn't happen until, you know, for me, the creative process is how fast can I get it out of my head so that I can see it. And then I'll translate that to the organizational style within the digital world. Sure. And just because I like to be complete. So what is the, uh, what's the tool? What's the electronic tool? It's called Workflowy. Workflowy. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically, it's super, what I love about Workflowy is it's super bland. So it's just, all it does is allow you to make lists, but you can make infinite lists and they're just bullet pointed. So you can make like indentations and such, but they're just streaming lists, but then you can drag and drop the bullets in different places. So I like it because it takes away all those shiny tools that like Microsoft Word has and right. it's just bare bones and it's just for that specific listing purpose. Sure. That's, I, I use uh, Scrivener a lot when I'm writing an article and it does, it's a very, it's the most, um, basic word processor you ever saw, mm -hmm. but it lets you take chapters or sections and move them around or what have you. So I get yep. that idea. Very similar. Yeah. So, okay. So we're leaving behind uh, now even like the whole food thing and you start, you start podcasting in 2011. And um, is that, a, is a, is a, to start as a food podcast? Mm -hmm. So our show started as food talk radio and that's what it was. And uh, so we talk about food, we take live calls, answer questions, talk about food topics, that whole thing. And then again, 
the way the, the universe works. I had a caller call. So I had a, my co-host on that show was actually the guy who was in the production room who used to do radio. Cause I said, look, man, I've never, I've done a lot of TV. I've never done, I've never done radio. I need some help. I need guidance from someone who's been there. I don't need you to carry the show, but if I ever, cause one of the things I find is when we're talking to other people or teaching or whatever, we typically talk as if the other person knows as much as we do. And so we can use terminology and different things that they may not understand. So I told him, I said, look, you are like the listener. If you hear something that doesn't make sense, ask. That way they don't have to call or they don't get lost. And that way it keeps me grounded. And if I ever get rambly or boring, cut in because I've never done this before. So he helped me really get my radio legs under me and understand how radio works with different types of callers and how to fill airtime and all those types of things. And so I had him on the show sit next to me and he was about, um, about 15 years older than I was. So he was in a different, a little bit of a different generation. So we had a caller call in one, one Saturday morning and say, Hey, you know, uh, so you're familiar, right? Uh, Mark with Kraft Mac and cheese. Sure. Okay. Everyone knows that, what that is, right? So it's something I grew up on. It's a comfort food. We had a caller call in and go, okay, you guys talk about Kraft Mac and cheese, but do you remember there was also a Kraft product they made that was very similar, but it was spaghetti. And I said, I've never seen that in my life. I've seen a lot of food. I've never seen Kraft spaghetti. They said, yeah, it comes in a box and has a seasoning packet and you mix it with a can of tomato paste and you make spaghetti dinner. Oh. And I was like, well, my <laughs> I'm Italian. My family always made our own spaghetti, but it's interesting. And my co-host goes, I remember that. I tried it when I was a kid, blah, 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 blah. So they started talking about this. And I'm like, you know what? And he's, he even said, I haven't seen it in like 20 years. I said, I'll tell you what. If you find a box of this, send it into the station and I'll make it on the air next week and we'll try it. And I'll give you my honest feedback. And so we closed the show, didn't think anything of it, closed everything up, left, you know, whatever. I come back the next week, there's like 15 boxes of this stuff waiting at the station. So I'm like, all right, true to form. We'll go ahead. So we made it and we tried it and people loved it. This concept just took off. So from that point on, we were cooking on the radio every week. It was a unique take. It was different. And it was almost like I explained to people, like listening to a baseball game on the radio. You know, you know, the game's happening. You can hear the crack of the bat. You can hear the crowd. But then the, you rely on the announcer, to, uh, the play-by-play guy, to tell you what's happening. And then you envision it in your mind's eye. That's what this was with cooking. So they could hear the pots and pans. They could hear what we're the sizzle of the, of the pan when we see or something. We it would describe it and talk about it and explain it but it was up to them to imagine it. So that's when the TV station came into play because I contacted them and said, hey, look, we got this cooking on the radio thing that people are loving. And right now we're just recording and putting some of the clips on YouTube. Why don't you come in and we'll put it on, on the TV station? So that's what we did. So Saturday mornings, the show would go live along with the recipe on our blog. Then Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would replay the video on TV. So if someone was in, listened to it and said, hey, I got the recipe, I want to see this, they would watch it on TV that week. Then we would take that and also upload it to YouTube so that people who heard the podcast could then watch the cooking show as well on there. So that's so how you we are, had this so, whole thing. So you're a real live Pete Schwetty. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Do you know who Pete? Do you know what I do you get yeah, that from reference? Saturday Night Live, yeah, Alec yeah. Baldwin when they were yeah. eating the the sweaty balls. So yeah, I just want to show you got I just, just like Pete Schwetty, yeah. yeah, you're the you're the you're the real live Pete Schwetty. Got yeah. it. <laughs> So we were actually like, I would bring in my little oven and my burner and we would cook in the, in like everyone else who worked at the station loved it because whatever was there afterwards, they got to eat, they would get to eat. And like, so it was, it was a cool thing and uh, it was very interesting and it, it worked. I mean, we had a lot of listenership and with other stations pick us up, but it just worked out to there's politics in radio and there's a lot of other things that people don't know about so in order to make this venture profitable because and not i don't mean profitable by you know making a lot of money i mean the amount of time and energy you put into producing and creating this has to be proportionate to the value you get in return monetarily and that just was very difficult to balance that so i mean we had sponsors we had you know distribution we had all kinds of different things but it just wasn't sustainable unless other people were willing to step up and do certain things and you know at the end of the day politics went out and that's why i looked at podcasting and said there's no politics here we can run it how we we control the content we don't have to appease anyone and we can distribute it vastly without having to approach other stations put up sponsorship deals all of those different things so podcasting just made so much sense. And then when you 
look at the execution of podcasting and how you, the, all of the things that are available, especially today, more so than 10 years ago, it's just, I think every entrepreneur needs to explore the space. But now, today, you're, you are, and you're running a show that airs six days a week, and you're, you're not cooking, you're now, you're now in the host chair. I mean, not that you weren't in the host chair before, but before you were in front of a, say, in front of a, an oven, and now you're, and now you're more or less, you know, talking to, to what, to other entrepreneurs, to, you know, how's that, how, how did that, that shift? Well, I did, I, I took calls when I was on the radio. So we had live callers call in. So that wasn't new to me. And then I also did interviews while I was on, while I did that. So we had people from like different food companies. We had celebrity chefs. We had, um, you know, sp local sportscasters on the show. So I, I had interview experience. And so when I started my show that I host today, it wasn't supposed to be an interview show. It was supposed to be just a solo show. It was just me and a microphone. And it actually, to be completely transparent, started out as a morning call. So I would do a morning Zoom call for 10 minutes because what I noticed, you know, with the clients that I was working with, because I got back into, you know, I was still in the coaching space throughout this whole time. I wasn't as intense in it as I was doing all of this media stuff, but I got more back in, I got back into it more afterwards because again, I wanted to start to take what I had and develop some type of business model around it. And that was the monetizable skill that I really had at the time. So in the background to fund my media, uh, stuff that I was doing. I was doing coaching again. And what I noticed was a lot of people started the day in a pretty bad way, meaning they would hit snooze three or four times before they get up in the morning. Then they would, then they would get up in a rush, chug coffee on their way out the door, sit in rush hour traffic on their way to work only to get to a job that they really didn't want to be at anyway. And this all happens before 9am. Now it's 9am. It's time to start your day. And you're in this huge momentum deficit right off the bat. So my whole idea was, how about I give people 10 minutes of a different way of thinking in the morning, just 10 minutes where even if they're just in the car on their way to work, instead of thinking about all the things that went wrong this morning or all the things they have to do at work, they can think about what are the outcomes that I really want to achieve? What are three realistic things I can do today to begin to build momentum towards that? And what are three things in my life that are already present that I can feel grateful for? Not just think about being grateful, but really feel grateful. That's what the show was. It was those, those three things, which I call the GEO method, gratitude, intention, outcome. And we would do that first thing in the morning. And then we would talk about something else, whether it be leadership, whether it be entrepreneurism, whether it be developing confidence, whatever it may be. So it'd be like five minutes of morning routine, five minutes of that. And that's all it was supposed to be. But then I realized, so I would do this live every morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time, but to be 7.21 a.m. to be exact, because I wanted a weird time people wouldn't forget. But uh, what I realized was, doing these calls, people in the West Coast weren't going to get up at 4 a.m. just to listen to these. So I realized I should just make this a podcast because I've been in the space for so long. This should be its own thing. So I'll just do a daily podcast that people can listen to whenever they want throughout their day for 10 minutes to give them a little bit of encouragement and reframe their thinking and get them ready for whatever they're doing. And so you know, people really liked it. It kind of took off. And that was the only, there was nothing else behind it other than I'm just going to do this to, you know, to give people this info. And so I had people start to reach out to me and say, Hey, do you take guests? And I thought, you know what? I've done interviews in the past. Uh, it's not foreign to me and it'll alleviate me having to make content seven days a week. So, cause I, I started out seven days a week. So I decided recently to give myself a break on Sundays, but it was seven days a week for a while. So I said, you know what? I'll do it. That's fine. Let's do it. I'll have you on and we'll do that. So I would just sporadically have guests on. Then, you know, it kind of kept growing from there to where it started as guests, maybe one day a week, then two days a week, then four days a week. And for the last oh, a little over a year, I've had guests on seven days a week at, with a huge backlog just because, you know, people just want to be on the show. And it's not that I, I, I'm very fortunate and blessed to, I never went out and had to like look for guests. There've been certain guests that I've wanted to have on, have on that I've reached out to, but I've never been in the position where if I don't find a guest, this is going to be bad. I've had people just come to me and want to be on the show. And then I, you know, I give people a great experience on the show because it's thought out the way that we do it in the format. So then they refer other people to me and I get connections that way. And so it's just turned into its whole thing. And that's kind of why, you know, it's, it's not 10 minute conversations uh, uh, per se. I mean, sometimes they're 12 minutes, sometimes they're 13 minutes. We try to stay around that 10 minute mark 
uh, to keep it succinct so that people can consume it in one sitting because I think that there's something to say for brevity as long as there's power in it. Um, and I want people to get that feeling of completion because if you listen to the podcast from beginning to end all the way through, it makes you feel like you really accomplished something and you take something from it. So, you know, just from having those conversations, I realized that I really like having conversations with other people. I'm innately curious. I like to learn about them. I like to help them tell their story. And I have questions a lot of times, wherever, you know, wherever they come from, I'm not quite sure, but I have questions that people don't typically ask them. So we get to see a new spin into someone that other podcasts, I try to be different from other podcasts because I know most of the people I have on have been on other podcasts. And if you go and Google them, you'll probably find 18 episodes with the same story and the same everything. So I try to be unique to the point where we talk about other things that they may not talk about on other shows. That way it allows them to explore different areas of themselves and share different aspects of their personality with other people. So today you, um, you still do coaching too? Um, well we do, but we do it in a little bit of a different, different, uh, aspect. We don't do like, I don't do weight loss coaching anymore. I don't do specific like success coaching, so to speak, but we do coaching around for entrepreneurs around media. So it's, you know, I have a media company, but our our media company isn't just production. We do do production because we want our, our clients to succeed with their venture or their business or what return they have. So I do coaching from the aspect of here's your media asset that we're going to help you produce and we're going to work with you on what is the return we're getting from this asset? If it's a podcast, what return do you want from this podcast while we build an audience? And so we go through strategy and how we're going to set it up and how we're going to execute on it and what the workflow looks like and all of those things. So, you know, and while we're doing that, we're talking about their business model. We're talking about, you know, how are you, you know, how are you serving your clients? How are you fulfilling? How are you, what's your retention like? How do you retain clients? How do you go out and find new clients? So it's that whole strategy around that, but it's built around, here's this media asset that's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to create conversations that convert. That's the first thing. We want to be actively having conversations that convert on a consistent basis. And it doesn't have to be conversion into money or into clients. It can be conversions into opportunities. It can be conversions into other things that, you know, maybe it's a conversion into meeting a person that introduces you to a person that, you know, offers you your dream job. It could be a million different things, but we want them to convert. We don't want conversations to ever die. We want the conversation to turn in to convert into something else so that you build momentum around each conversation you have and they ultimately lead to you figuring out what it is you want to do and how you're going to do that. So we help them create conversations that convert and then build build those conversations that convert into a media asset that goes out into the world and attracts an audience to them at the same time. So now they're building authority, they're building awareness, but at the same time, in the moment, they're having the conversations that become the fuel that drives the engine of their business. Do you, do you think that every business can stand from, it doesn't have to be podcasting, but do you think that every business can stand from having a media presence? Yes. I think that every business, I, I don't know that, uh, that, a media presence will absolutely fix every business or be the only thing every business needs. But I think it's worth the conversation. I think that every business should explore it. Every business should have a conversation with someone who uh, like ourselves who do that professionally. And that's what we do to give them to paint the picture of possibility of what it could do or what the strategy could be. And then they make the decision. But I think that every business should absolutely explore, especially in today's landscape. I mean, look at what happened with the whole COVID thing. I mean, you can't go, a lot of businesses are, the non-essentials are all shut down. People are at home. They're trying to figure out how to work remotely. If you had some kind of a remote media strategy or even a regular media strategy, you could always convert it into a remote strategy. Like you said, for instance, most of your podcasts you used to do in person. Now you're having to do more remotely but it's still the same thing. It's still the same conversation. It's still the same outcome. It's still the same execution. It's just different in the method that you deploy to do that. And so I think, yeah, I think every business should at least have a conversation about that to see what's possible and then weigh the pros and cons. If, if we go down this route, what's the best thing that could happen? What's the worst thing that could happen? And what are the things in the middle and which one outweighs the other? I think that that's really relevant and it's something that in today's landscape, I think every business needs to at least have that way of thinking. Fair enough. And I think because we're not in front of each other. So red wine or white wine? 
red. Red. Okay. Well, I need to know for the future. So when we yeah. do get to, to break bread together that I, so, I know in advance. <laughs> I'll say this. If, if, if we're, it depends on the food, of course. But sure. if, it's, if we're inside and it's, it's, a nice, it's nice, then always red wine. If we're outside and it's hot, then it's chilled white. Okay. Fair, fair enough. So um, I also need to ask you from long before in this conversation, but the good, the bad, the cookbook, is that still available? It is. It's it is? still available. Yeah. It's been what, 10 years now since we wrote it. So, I mean, it's still, it's still a good book. I, I, I guess I look at it and go, if I wrote it today, it would be so much better. So it's kind of like one of those things, but it's still a really good book. The recipes are really good. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's still available. You can go to Amazon and grab a copy. It'll so be in I the show notes. That. Yeah, I mean, yeah, put it in there. I mean, people can still, there's a lot of good recipes in that book. And there's some recipes that I still make today that are in that book. So, I mean, yeah, definitely check it out. Is your favorite one Do you think of? Favorite one. I really like, um, just from an overall wow perspective, the bacon mushroom cheeseburger casserole wows a lot of people um, as far as like, because it's really impressive. It's big and it's like a cheeseburger in a casserole because it's got everything in it, including the buns. Um, but I think that my favorite recipe from the book is probably the grilled romaine, the grilled romaine, uh, salad. It's got like oh. a lemon avocado dressing and it's got a little, uh, whole grain crouton that goes with it with some grilled onions and tomatoes. It's just a really good grilled salad. And there's something to say about a grilled salad. I mean, it's something that I think has become more mainstream these days, but, uh, back then it was something kind of new and it's just, it's like, summertime you think salad light refreshing but also get still get the hint of the grill so that's probably one of my go-tos for sure that's cool so uh mario pareca how do people find you mario pareca.com is my website so anyone can go there get all my social links connect with me that way that's probably the best place but i'm very active on twitter and facebook so you can connect with me there as well i mean i'm it's really hard not to find me i'm pretty much everywhere so just go search for me and you'll find me that's awesome and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one back at you that you brought up. Mm-hmm. Tell us three things that you're grateful for. Three things that I'm grateful for. Okay. First and foremost, I am grateful for my relationship with God because that's something that has not always been easy. Uh, I grew up Catholic and I was very, you know, I, I, I took it on from a very young age and I, I still am a practicing Catholic, by the way. I'm very proud of that. But I had to do a lot of exploration. I had to do a lot of research and a lot of question asking and a lot of, which I think everyone should do around their faith and try to understand what is God calling you? How is he calling you to, to a relationship with him? How is he calling you to worship him? How is he calling you? And I think that, and that's like the central part of my life is my relationship with God. So that's the first thing that I'm grateful for because throughout everything in my life, I've always found my way, but he's always brought me back to him. And it's something that's very important to me. So that's the first thing I'm grateful for. The second thing is my family, of course, because they're always there for me. They're always super supportive through everything that I've gone through. I can rely on them. I'm very blessed and fortunate to have loving people in my lives and have that. And the third thing I'm super grateful for is the opportunity to do what I love every day. I mean, to have that openness of mind and the, uh, the, the ability to, you know, to be able to pursue what I love and to find some success there and to continue to build on it. And I think a lot of people, as they go on the journey, they get focused on how long it's taking or how frustrating it can be to be stuck. But when you reframe it and say, look, you got the opportunity. Every day is a new day. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. You have the opportunity to pursue something that matters to you. And I heard someone say uh, the other day, which I think is super important, that you know, no matter how wild your dreams are, how crazy things are that you want, even if it's super, I mean, the, the most important thing is to not be super glued to a specific expectation, because if you know what you want and you go out and pursue that, there's a chance that you may not reach that specific thing. But the pursuit of trying to reach that thing will be the most fulfilling thing you do. The journey is, is fulfilling if you allow it to be. So I would rather pursue something that I really want that is that that I'm going after and I choose to go after and not attain that than be forced to do something every day that I don't want to do or that leads to somewhere I don't want to be. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to get up and have conversations with inter- interesting people all the while building my business and focusing on moving in the direction that I want to fo- move in so that I can experience life in the m- manner in which I desire to experience it. So those are three things that I'm really grateful for each and every day. That's awesome. 
And that's, that puts a nice little bow on this. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time and telling your, sto- your story to us and to my audience. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mario Pereca. He's really an outstanding guy and truly a thought leader. Uh, As Mario mentioned, I was recently on his podcast, so please be sure to check out those episodes and really check out his whole podcast because he has great guests and great snippets on YouTube as well. Uh, Thank you so much for your ongoing support. We really appreciate it. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts and please rate us and give us some feedback as well. And don't forget our other show, 31 Minutes, every Friday featuring conversations for 31 minutes between myself and Kisha Moore. In the meanwhile, and until we see you again, thanks. Have a great day.